Good morning, dear Intriguer. A big shout out to 44-year-old Torbjorn Peterson of Denmark, who recently completed his 10-year tour of all 195 countries without ever stepping foot on a plane. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the latest in Indian and Pakistani politics, and we take a look at the week ahead. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Uh, doing very, very well, Ethan. Um, I'm excited, as I know you will be too, at the return yes. of the Premier League uh, imminently this weekend. I was going to say the the very same thing. <laughs> what's what's your prediction? Who's going to lift the trophy at the end of the year? Uh, well, it'll be some sort of shake or prince from the Middle East. It'll be uh, Man City <laughs> or maybe Newcastle. And is my outside bet? Oh, wow. but I doubt it. But yeah, it'll be it'll be going to the the Middle East. Yeah. Well, as for me, I mean, I I think uh, you know you have City. They they won the Premier League three years in a row. They're going for four. Uh, they won the treble last year, which means they won the Premier League. They won the FA Cup and they won the Champions League. Really, only a fool would assume or bet against them. And that's exactly why I'm picking Arsenal to win the title. This <laughs> I year. feel like you're being led by your heart there, Ethan. Not not you, not your head. <laughs> One thing I think we can probably both agree on is uh, my team, Chelsea. Uh, you know, they'll they'll do well if they get back in the kind of top top six. I think this season. Yeah, that that'd be a great result. I mean, that'd be a win. Luckily, this is all recorded, so we will be able to come back to this. Yeah, maybe we should do that. Yeah, a little accountability podcast next year. We ought to. Someone's got to hold us accountable. <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking of holding people accountable, John, it's been a busy few days in South Asian politics. Let's start. A, let's start a bit further north. We're gonna we're gonna go to Pakistan and, and India. We'll start with Pakistan and work our way down. So, what's been happening there? That's why we pay the big bucks, Ethan. Uh, transitions from football to Pakistani politics without <laughs> uh, without blinking an eye. It's excellent work. Um, no beats missed. <laughs> yeah. So in Pakistan, well, I mean, it's it's been a, a a lively place when it comes to electoral politics in the last twelve months, Pakistan, and I think we've covered it a few times actually. Um, our old friend Imran Khan, former cricketer, uh, former prime minister as well. Obviously, he served from uh, 2018 to 2022. Um, he's a remains an incredibly popular figure in Pakistan, as I think most of our listeners will be aware. Um, and for those who aren't aware, perhaps uh, you know he started off as kind of an ally of the all important Pakistani military uh, when he was running as prime minister for the first time, but he fell out with the military, never advisable in Pakistan, uh, later on in his prime ministerial term. Some suspect, myself included, that uh, that falling out with the military led to his removal from office uh, through a no-confidence vote in, uh, it was April last year. Yeah. So out of office in April last year, that must be it. That must be the end of the Imran Khan story. Yeah, not, not quite. He's not exactly the type to go sort of gently into that good night to completely misquote Dylan Thomas. But he, you know, he still has a huge and very, very loyal, like like honestly, surprisingly loyal following. Um, and he started holding political rallies shortly after he was removed from office last year. Um, and he was actually even nearly assassinated at, at one of those those rallies. Um, but he always had the intent to run again for the prime ministership uh later this year. But Pakistan's election commission disqualified him from holding public office last October for alleged, allegedly accepting 
illegal gifts during his prime ministership. Um, and I remember we chatted about Khan's political future earlier this year because there was the, those crazy scenes when military-style police officers arrested him at his house, but his supporters prevented the police from going into the house, kind of a, a human wall. Uh, I think we predicted that he was either going to have to essentially overthrow the government or get locked up or he would be locked up by the government. And it turns out the the latter is what's happened because he was he was released on bail when we talked about this last, but um, he was arrested this past weekend and he's been sentenced to three years in uh, in high security prison. Well, so is that the end of Imran Khan? I mean, if his disqualification <laughs> from, from holding office wasn't enough, he's now behind bars. It's hard to lead mm-hmm. a, a political movement from... From that sort of predicament. Well, it's like you're uh, taking talking points from the Pakistani government because that's what they'll be hoping for. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I think I think most people assume that the Pakistani government has engineered this conviction for, for precisely the reasons you just mentioned, um, and it does probably spell the end of his political career in the short term. I say probably because you know political movements have been run from prison before, plenty of examples of that. Um, but even if Khan is forced out of the spotlight for this three-year prison term, you know, he's still pretty young in, in political terms. He's 70 years old um, and he's got a super powerful political apparatus behind him, the, the PTI party in Pakistan, which he actually founded back in 1996. 70 years old, John, for the record, is the age of, our, of, of the youngest member of the U.S. Senate. Is that true? No, it's not true. But it's sometimes oh, it feels okay. that you, way. You, you got me. I know. I was like, I, that's so believable and yeah. so just depressing that I believed you for half a second there. <laughs> you got that's me. Funny. Well done. Um, <laughs> but anyway, to get back to the point, um, Khan called for civil disobedience following his arrest this last weekend. Um, his supporters have kind of not done that so far, which I think is a good thing if you're a Pakistani, obviously. Um, but it doesn't mean they won't. I think we'll learn a lot more about his enduring power if he has any left um, or the PTI's party, his political party, their ability to kind of sustain that momentum even though he's in jail. We'll learn a lot more about that in elections um, later this year. I think they're due to take place around November. Um, if if he performs well, if his party performs well, I think that, uh, you know, that's going to be a huge cause for concern for the government. Yeah, no later than November, those elections. So they could be coming up sooner than we expect. Uh, Well, John, let's move on next door down to India, a little bit east, a little bit south, where the prime minister is facing a no confidence vote as well. Yes, he is. He being uh, the prime minister Narendra Modi, which I'm sure everybody is well aware of being the highly educated listeners that we have. The outcome of that vote, (laughs) the vote you mentioned, the no no confidence vote, it's not really in question, right? Um, Modi runs the table in Indian politics. Uh, BJP, his party, they command a truly massive majority in the Indian parliament. So, you know, there's no chance that um, the lawmakers who do oppose Modi will be able to kind of knock him out of his office. So so why are lawmakers doing this in the first place? I mean, why go through the effort, all the tedious... Oh, God, the parliamentary debate, the procedures for a vote that's doomed to fail. Those poor parliamentary staffers. Well, to, to circle back on a theme of you making me believe that the youngest senator was 70, it's a little bit like impeachment proceedings in the US. It, it's like the result isn't necessarily the point. It's the the spectacle, the debate, the attention, the news coverage that that a no-confidence vote will get. I mean, we're talking about it, right? Um, and, and the opposition is just increasingly angry um, that Modi has been almost completely silent on this issue of 
ethnic violence in um, a far-flung Indian state called Manipur. Um, you know, it's political posturing for sure, but um, you know that that's that's part of parliamentary politics. The opposition in India have have recently formed a you know, for want of a better phrase, a super coalition to try and take on Modi in next year's elections. Um, and so, you know, they've got to try and draw attention to their cause in any way they can. But I don't want to just gloss over the violence that I just mentioned, because what's happening in Manipur is really, really troubling. And it and it clearly needs prime ministerial attention. Um, it's been going on since May, uh, but Modi only spoke about it publicly for the first time in late July, a couple of weeks ago. Well, so what is going on in Manipur? Well, around 200 people have been killed, according to reports. About 60,000 have been displaced. Um, and there's been, you know, all sorts of horrific reports of decapitations and sexual violence and, and this kind of stuff too. Um, the, the, the conflict itself is complex in a decades-old ethnic dispute between two primary groups in the region, the, the Meite, uh, which make up just over half of the population and the minority Kuki tribes, group of tribes um, who have been protesting against a regional policy to extend special privileges to the Meite um, by that the state government in Manipur. You know, India is a massive country, massive, massive country. We sometimes forget just how big it is geographically and obviously population wise, but geographically huge. Um, and Manipur is one of those provinces, you know, far in the northeast of India, um, sort of North of Bangladesh, it's, it's if you actually look at a map of India, a lot of people might be surprised about where it is. It doesn't look like the India you might have in your head. It kind of sits way up in the northeast. Um, and, and it's been neglected by, well, critics at least say it's been neglected by the central Indian government for a long time, for decades. So then could the events in Manipur and, you know, Modi's response to them or lack thereof, I mean, could could that impact his lower electoral chances next year? I wouldn't think so. You know, I mentioned it before that he has a huge majority. He's still incredibly popular. He's built a political machine that is formidable. Um, and even with this new opposition coalition of 26 parties uh, who oppose him, um, and actually the return of the top opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, who we've talked about before, Ethan, um, he actually had his disqualification for um, public office or standing for public office. He had that disqualification suspended by a court just last week. So he's back in the game. But even with all of that, the, the BJP's position in Indian politics is just so, so powerful. Um, you know, if you if you kind of want to put a positive spin on it from an opposition standpoint, the election is a long time away. Uh, and if Modi kind of keeps getting this bad press for, for these kinds of issues, you know, maybe it could suck up a lot of the political oxygen. But, you know, I, I, I find it hard to see a world in which uh, Modi is ousted from power anytime soon. Today's episode is brought to you by Masterworks. When incredibly rare and valuable assets come up for sale, it's typically the wealthiest people that end up taking home the spoils, but not with Masterworks. Their $1 billion collection includes works by greats like Banksy, Picasso, and Basquiat, all of which are collectively owned by everyday investors like you. So when Masterworks sells a painting, you make the profit. Check out the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So 
this is the part where we share what's been on our mind. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you lead us off, Ethan? What what you've been watching? What have you been thinking about? Geopolitically speaking, obviously. <laughs> We've already covered the only other thing that's on my mind at the top of the show, John. <laughs> and we don't need to get back into that. But right. I've got, I've actually got another uh, country in South Asia on my mind today, so we'll, we'll keep moving a little bit east. Uh, so uh, opposition politicians have been leading protests against the government of longtime Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh. So the source of the opposition's frustration is that Miss Hasina, whose father was Bangladesh's founder and who last year became the longest serving female head of government in history. It's a good fact. Uh, we've been doing some things over in the International Intrigue newsletter about the first female heads of state, first female heads of government. Well, Sheikh Hasina is the longest serving female head of government. Uh, and and the, the, the problem that opposition leaders see is that she's just been around for much too long. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's been in office for a total of 19 years. Her rule has slowly but steadily become much more autocratic. Her economic management has been lackluster. And she's, I mean, I listened to a podcast featuring her and the interviewer kind of describes her at the end as just generally apathetic to the concerns of everyday Bangladeshis, much the same way that any leader who's in power for two decades might become. So now the opposition wants her out and they want her out soon before elections in January next year so that they can rest assured that her government won't attempt to manipulate the outcome as she has before. Well, I'll ask you the same question you asked me about Modi. Um, is the opposition likely to succeed in their efforts to get to get her out? Their demands in this particular instance won't bear fruit. I mean, the government has responded somewhat brutally to these protests on the street. They've implemented a new digital security law, which critics say will stifle free speech. And they've really gone after opposition leaders. I mean, the government sent Hasina's top rival, Khaleda Zia, who is Bangladesh's first female prime minister, a rich history of gender yeah. inclusivity in the top ranks yeah, of amazing. Bangladeshi politics. It's actually just, it's kind of oscillated between these two women since 1991. Hmm. Um, but they sent her to prison a few years ago and barred her from politics. And then last week they sentenced uh, Khaled Zia's son to nine years in prison in absentia for corruption charges dating back all the way to 2007. And John, I mean, this is fundamentally the problem with autocracies. We see this so right. often around election season because the stakes of elections are so high because you don't know if your politi- political opponent will, will send you to prison or into exile. So Sheikh Hasina has obviously cracked down on her political opposition. So she's probably and rightfully worried that her opponents will do the same to her if they come yeah. to power. Retribution, yeah. Retribution, yeah. And I mean, and that's why... This, these tensions, you know, who knows what the outcome of the election will be, but Sheikh Hasina will do everything she can to stay in office. It's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that uh, that she was kind of under pressure. I know that she's been there for a long time, but I, I think you make a great point. We see it with Putin. We see it with all other kinds of autocratic leaders is that even, even if you suspect deep down that they would rather be putting their feet up by a pool somewhere, they can't give up power because, as you say, they, they may well be, you know, 
run out of town are a lot worse. Yeah, sure. It sure is worth paying attention to. So what's on your mind, John? You got Nepal or Bhutan, something else in South Asia, Sri Lanka, perhaps the yeah. Maldives? <laughs> uh, the options abound, but I'm going to stop our little uh, geographical tour of, uh, of South Asia um, and we'll do, do a little something a little different. Um, I want to flag a, a few things that are coming up in the week ahead that might be of interest. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of what just happened and, and what it means. Um, but looking forward is also a really powerful way of kind of understanding our information environment that we live in. Very cryptic, John. Very cryptic. I like it. <laughs> go go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay. I guess the point I'm trying to make there is, you know, I, I love narratives, Ethan. I, I bang on about them all the time. And this idea that the media kind of sets a narrative that that uh, for stories and for, for events and we kind of take it on board. Um, I, I, I'm always interested in figuring out what isn't being covered in mainstream media, why it's not being covered and whether it's important. And I think one of the most powerful tools that we can kind of use to take ourselves out of that current, that river of information and be more conscious um, consumers of news is to look forward, you know, look what's coming down the pipeline of news and and figure out what we think might happen and, and what we're watching out for. You know, all of these things are you know, tools in the in the good analyst's belt, Ethan. Well, you're 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 making some big promises here, John. So I suggest you start delivering. What's what's uh, coming up? Well, well, here goes, huh? Um, so three slightly off the radar things that that I'm paying attention to this week, and the first one might seem a little boring, I'm afraid, to to folks, but um, China will release its July trade balance figures figures uh, later today. Or by the time folks are listening to this, it's probably been announced already. You know these these releases. So these are just kind of Every month, the government releases exports, imports, these kinds of numbers. Um, they've been making more news, I think, uh, recently than they usually might because Chinese exports have been falling really, really quickly. Um, they fell 12.4% in June from June a year ago, which was a far bigger drop than expectations. Um, I think most analysts thought it would drop around 9%, something like that. Um, and they, they come on the back of even... Oh, well, it's more of a trend. So in May, there was also a decline on the year before. Um, the more these figures fall, the more China has to kind of stoke its domestic demand in its economy, something that's also not having a lot of success doing right now. Um, you know, if exports are down versus last July, so when we figure out, when we hear these figures, I would then expect a flurry of articles about how China's economy is super weak and and how they need to kind of fix it and how, you know, Xi Jinping isn't isn't able to fix it. So I think that's one thing I'm watching. The second thing is uh, also later today, actually, um, President Lula of Brazil is going to host a summit of Amazon nations um, aimed at sort of enabling his country to position itself at the top of regional climate politics. Um, you know, the idea that Lula got elected on, on a campaign of ending deforestation of the Amazon and now he's trying to make himself and Brazil a leader in the region for that policy. It's a big turnaround from his predecessor's take on the Amazon, which I think was much more like cut everything down that you can. Um, but the biggest thing about that I'm watching is how the Western media is going to portray this stuff. Most of the things I read, um, you know, would would have you believe that he's light years better than Bolsonaro. Um, most articles praise his work on deforestation in the Amazon, um, and they tend to kind of ignore some of his more troubling tendencies around autocratic policies. He's picked a fight with the Brazilian central bank, these kinds of things. So they they paint him in, in quite a nice light. Um, you know, Brazil's economy looks to be in pretty good shape and it's certainly a lot better than a lot of its neighbours. But despite all that and despite the coverage that he gets in the Western media, Lula's approval rating is at 
33%, down from 38% earlier this year. And here's the interesting bit. That's an exact tie with where Jair Bolsonaro was at in the same time in his presidency. So we have this situation where he's doing a lot of things that the English speaking media kind of like the, you know, left-leaning policies that, uh, that, that kind of make the front page of the guard in the New York times, but maybe the Brazilians themselves aren't as enamored with his policies. Okay. So you've covered economics, you've covered climate. What's, what's last on your list? Well, this one's a bit different. Um, it's the 78th anniversary on Wednesday of the U.S. dropping a nuclear bomb on Nagasaki uh, that killed more than 74,000 people. You know, I think we've got Oppenheimer in the cinemas, uh, and I think this anniversary might get picked up a little more in the media than it otherwise would. And it's probably quite timely because, you know, for the first time in my memory, we have a major power rattling nuclear sabers, Russia, when they threatened to let off nuclear bombs in in Ukraine, uh, and we have another nuclear-armed power arguably stoking tensions, i.e. China with Taiwan. So I think probably, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little older than you, Ethan. I was, I was still born uh, in the Cold War just, but I don't really remember in my lifetime any kind of genuine nuclear brinksmanship, any kind of nuclear war. Um, and, you know, I think it's, we're not anywhere near where we were in the 60s, but it's, it's that, that threat is rising again. So I think this kind of this story, this anniversary might just kind of capture a few more imaginations yeah. this time around. If only there was some sort of piece of popular entertainment that could remind us of the stakes of nuclear exchange. Right. You've seen it, though, haven't you? We'll have to create something. Uh, no, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, you haven't seen it. Uh, maybe, well, on maybe on Wednesday. Maybe on Wednesday. Maybe we'll talk about that in the next podcast. That sounds good. See you then, John. Thanks, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, we want to know what you think of the show. You can always let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. But if you want to get into some more detail, we've got a survey for you to take in the show notes. It only takes two minutes, I promise. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.